Well, it has been some time since we have been in 2 Timothy, so if you would, please take your Bibles out this morning and turn over to the book of 2 Timothy. There we resume our study. We have been making our way through the pastorals. For those of you who have been attending regularly, you know that we went through 1 Timothy, and now we are in 2 Timothy. And and so, we resume that study this morning back in chapter 2 as Uh, We get back to Paul's instructions to Timothy. As I've already said to you on other occasions, you know that if, or not if, Galatians was Paul's first letter recorded in Scripture that he wrote to the church, and 2 Timothy was his last. And so what he is giving to Timothy now, these instructions, are probably some of the last things that he wrote so that He is giving the final instruction, knowing that his life has been poured out like an offering to the Lord. He's got this young man whom he loves and cherishes, this son in the faith, this one who has done many missionary travels with him, this one who has shared in his sufferings, this one who has been an encouragement to him and been encouraged by him. He's giving him this last little bit of instruction. And so when we read 2 Timothy, of course, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is God's inerrant Word, and we take it as such. We also read this as Paul's final parting advice to a young pastor in a very difficult situation in Ephesus. Ephesus is not, was not an easy place to labor, and so it should not be lost on us that Paul said, I can think of no one better than my son Timothy to go and labor there. And while Timothy is laboring there, Paul is consumed with Timothy understanding the importance of faithfulness and honor, humility and grace, and commitment to truth. In fact, Paul deals so much with the false teachers in these two letters, and even with Titus, that we need to understand the importance that he was laying down, as I've said so many times before in, in, in thinking through these books of the importance of not letting go of the truth. And that's so valuable for us today because we live in a time period where truth is constantly challenged. And the easy thing to do is to compromise truth that we might be better received in our culture, that we might have a more palatable message among our peers, that we might be more, the favorite word, more relevant, or my even more favorite word, on the right side of history. And please read Complete Sarcasm in both of those. Um, And so, what we have here is just continued 2,000 years of wisdom that has accrued and remains as valuable and vibrant today as it was when it was written. And so, without further delay, I want us to turn our attention there. This morning, we find ourselves in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14. We will uh, read through verse 21 this morning. So, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14, beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearer's. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened.' 
they are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So is the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, Your Word is before us true and rich and beautiful. It, It commands transparency. It demands vulnerability. God, it knocks away any defenses we have around our heart, and by the power of the Spirit, it renews us, body and soul. So transform us this morning, not because of a sermon, but because of the power of your Spirit working through your Word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think it was in 1998, well, I know it was, in 1998, a very powerful movie came out, a movie called Saving Private Ryan. Now, perhaps you've seen this movie. At the time, many World War II vets who did, were able to see the movie said it was one of the most realistic renditions of a war movie they had ever seen. In fact, um, just, just the opening scene of the storming of the beach in Normandy was so realistic, many of them had to stop because of how realistic it actually was. It is a hard movie to watch because of it accurately portrays the ravages of war. It accurately portrays what human beings can do to each other in the name of peace, which is ironic. It, ac- it accurately portrays how human beings can, with very little impetus, become completely immersed in things that are horrific and evil. It captures the heart of what war does to a, pe- a people. And so even though it's a historical fiction movie, it's fiction in the sense that it's, it's a made-up story. It's very historical in the sense of what it captures. It does give us some insights about humanity and about war. There's this poignant scene in that movie. Richard and I have talked about this scene from time to time because it is a very, very sobering, heavy scene. I'm about to give it away a movie, so if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. Uh, so Private Ryan is saved, just so you know. Um, at the very end of the movie, Captain Miller, who is played by Tom Hanks, he's, he's dying. He's on a bridge, and he's dying, and he knows he's dying. And through the movie, you've gotten to know him, so his humanity has come, come out. I mean, he's just a dude who, who answered the call, and he was just a teacher in a city somewhere, but he answered the call, and he was a man of valor. But he's dying, and one of the last things he says to Private Ryan is basically, lots of people have died for you. And he looks at him, and he says, earn this. Now, one way you can take that is, who can live up to that? Earn this? And yet, another thing, another way you can take it is this dying soldier who just given his life for his brother in combat or his brother in arms said, now take the life that has been spared and go live well. And of course, Again, I'm giving away the movie, but in the movie, you see the old Private Ryan standing at the grave, and he's just weeping like, did I do it? 
have I done that? Have I, have I, I'm sorry, I'll get choked up here. <clears throat> have I done, have I fulfilled that mission? And it's a beautiful thing for us to consider. Earn this, or my translation, go live well. And so that's the question that we as Christians have to constantly ask ourselves. As we look at ourselves in the mirror, am I living well? Am I living an honorable life? Am I living a life worthy of respect? Because that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy in this quick little paragraph this morning. Live a life worthy of honor. Live a life worthy of respect. See, we live in a culture where all is fair in love and war, right? We've heard that cliche before. All is fair in love and war, right? Honor, honor in today's culture is a very nice ideal, but it's not very practical, Because if we're going to live a life of honor, honor often means sacrifice. Honor often means laying down our own lives for the good of somebody else. Honor often means taking on burdens that make life much more difficult than it otherwise would have been. And so, honor becomes very quickly abandoned in our culture, and dishonor becomes easily excused in the name of pragmatism in the name of practicality, or in the name of something else that we could name. But when we read through the pastoral epistles, what it does is, you've often heard me say that faithfulness is the primary theme, and it is, faithfulness is, but if we want to think about a a bedfellow to faithfulness, a, a marriage partner to faithfulness, it's going to be honor. So if I'm going to live faithfully, my goal is to honor God and honor His people. My goal as living faithfully is to be a one who reflects the honor of Christ. My goal as to be one who is faithful is to be one who reflects the character of Christ prescribed in the Bible. So when we think about faithfulness and honor, they do. They are married together. They come together, which is why Paul is telling Timothy here to show himself honorable. When we think about the instructions just that we've seen in these books alone, just these two letters, we've seen words to elders, we've seen words to deacons, we've seen words to widows and parents and people who found themselves in slavery, which was about a third of the population at the time that Paul wrote. You can't get away from every single one of those that Paul is instructing God's people to be people who are faithful and who live with honor. And so when we think about what is the sum of the Christian life, I could sum it up in all sorts of ways. But it is a life of honor. It's a life of seeking to be a reflection of the honor of Christ, both in how I love and how I receive love, how I uh, extend grace and receive grace, how I extend mercy, receive mercy, how I set expectations and how I live up to expectations. Now, are any one of us in this room ever going to be perfectly honorable all the time? No. You're going to do dumb things just like I do dumb things. We're going to have the wrong reaction sometimes. We're going to have the wrong response sometimes. We're going to stumble in our personal lives and make really boneheaded decisions that are costless and that are costly and have a ripple effect. That's just the way it is. But the goal of the Christian life is to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and strive for a life of honor. And beloved of God, that's not works righteousness. That is Christianity 101. 
That is what it means to live biblically. And so, when we think about what does it mean to live honorably before God, well, there are a number of ways that we could answer that question. What it means is, is to embrace and imbibe His precepts and to live without compromising before the world. Now, that's a big, bold statement. Not too dissimilar from Captain Miller looking at Private Ryan and saying, earn this. It is a big, bold statement. And yet, Paul doesn't write as if we have no undergirding power that supports us and keeps us. We need to always understand that the underlying assumption is that Christians live and walk by the Spirit. Because when we try to operate in the flesh, we're going we're gonna to drift very quickly. And so that's the assumption here is that we are living without compromise by the power of the Spirit. Now, one of the things that Paul talks about here is us being vessels of honor. We'll come to that here in just a, a little while. And so what is a vessel of honor? Well, it's in belief and practice that we're seeking to honor the Lord. And when we think about belief and practice, they have what's called, what I would call a somewhat symbiotic relationship. They kind of depend on each other. If we're going to have right grounded beliefs, then it has to come out in what we do. Now, the reason I say it's a, generally it's a symbiotic relationship, because sometimes how we believe doesn't exactly come out in how we live. You know, like we, 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 we make mistakes. We have the wrong response. We have the wrong reaction. But as a general rule, what I believe should be clearly seen in how I live and the decisions that I make. And that's exactly what Paul's driving at here. Um, we do have to make room for periodic missteps because they're there. You have them, I have them. But, you know, when we live our lives, the goal is to live our lives so that when people see us, there is some sense of consistency with belief and practice. They say they believe this in their life. Measured up. I often, if I'm, if, I'm having, if I'm having conversation with people, especially about worldview, <laughs> and they're questioning some view, and I have to say, well, if I believe that God spoke creation into existence from nothing, wouldn't it make sense that I also believe X, Y, and Z, and that I order my life around those beliefs? And the answer has to be, well, yeah, of course, <laughs> Yeah. Because there are some things, now I mean there are some ways in which we're going to go against the culture and the grain because of what we believe. Sexual ethics is one of them. You know, we are archaic if you ask the world about Christianity and sexual ethics, and yet, why do we make the decisions and do what we do? Because of Scripture and what Scripture says, and we don't deviate from that. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this. That we honor God by living and believing rightly. That we honor God by living and believing rightly. And so when we think about what it means to be an honorable believer, that's kind of what Paul is getting at. And I love the word honor. I want for us to retake that and recapture and say, hey, I want to be a man of honor. I want to be a woman of honor. I want to be, and by that what we mean is not that we're better than other people, not that we have it more together than other people, but that our lives are defined by this one idea of, I want my life to honor Christ. 
How can my life more honor Christ? That's the question I'm asking myself as this new year takes off. How can Brad's life more honor Christ? And I think that's the question we must ask. So our call is to honor God in life, in belief, and in proclamation. A word we might use for that is holistic. That's the holistic approach to Christianity, that I want, what I, I want what's going on in my mind and heart to line up with Christ. I want what my hands are doing to line up with Christ. I want what my mouth is saying to line up with Christ. And so you get a full-orbed ministry to your own soul and spirit there, that now that my template, my goal, is for everything to be the image of Christ to the world. And beloved of God, that's a great goal. Now, the beauty of it is, is that's exactly what Scripture commands us to do. And exactly when Paul says, do your best, he's giving some wiggle room for Timothy. You're not going to do it perfectly. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. This idea of live your life to honor God knowing that there are going to be some moments for repentance. You have them, I have them, we've had them before. Maybe you're having them or I'm having them right now, and we will have them again. And yet that's the beauty that God has graciously given us the capacity to repent. Paul begins this, remind them of these things. So verses 14 through 19, that one little corpus right there kind of functions as our calling, the calling to Timothy, the calling to the church, the calling to Christians. So our calling, what are we called to do? Is to serve Christ with very specific obligations, very specific obligations. God is the God of detail. And so he says, remind them. That term, remind them there, as you've heard me say many times, it's an imperative command. It's urgent. Remind and keep reminding them. Timothy, remind yourself. Remind the church. You need to constantly be reminding the people of God these things. That's what he says. Remind them. Express command of these things. What is the these things? We we know now that Paul is very familiar, or Paul is very fond of using that very ambiguous phrase. And as we've seen before, Is it referring to what precedes? Is it referring to what follows? Or some combination of those two? Well, in this particular case, I'm convinced that remind them of these things refers to what follows. So remind them of these things. What things, Paul? To charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Well, stop right there. So he's saying charge them with this idea of be different. Don't be quarreling about words, which was that, that use of rhetoric was so popular during this time period and would continue to be for centuries beyond. He's saying, that's not where you need to get dug in, Timothy, not in quarreling about words. But he says, charge them before God. Now, that's an important little prepositional phrase, before God. What Paul is doing, charge them before God, call God to bear witness that this is God's message, Timothy. This is not my word to you. This is not your word to them. This is God's word to us, that we charge them before God to take note of how they carry themselves in public, how you carry yourself in public, how you engage in the ministry of the word. It should not be defined by quarreling and debate. That's the first thing he says. It should not be defined by quarreling and debate. Do not fight about words. He calls that not to quarrel about words, which does no good. 
which does no good. Let us let that sink in. Quarreling about words which does no good. That's not where we're gonna we're gonna meet people in their need with the truth of the gospel. When we think about this, it becomes worthless. It becomes just debate and and controversy, and it is not life-producing. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I want to make sure I'm clear on this. What I'm not saying is there are never going to be times where, uh, that's too many negatives. I'm just going to say it like this. There are going to be times where we get drawn into debate because the truth matters. And, 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 and getting precision and language is going to make the difference. But if our forte or if our, if our whole demeanor, if we're always looking for the debate and never just to simply encourage a brother or sister, we need to check our own hearts. If quarreling is what it always leads to, and we find every conversation that we get into, it ends in quarreling. Beloved of God, there's a common denominator in every one of those uh, situations, and it's us. And so maybe we need to rethink our strategy for conversation. If you find yourself in a position to contend for the truth and defend the truth, contend and contend with the power of the Holy Spirit. But like the writer of the book of Tactics says, when it gets angry, you've lost, you've lost the conversation. And so quarreling is usually a fruit of anger, frustration, annoyance. And that ought not to describe us as believers. So when we think about the goal of gospel, it's love, it's peace, it's unity, not unity at all costs, but unity around what is true. Um, and and to, to just debate for the sake of debating is fruitless. Now, he says here, he says here, which does no good, though it's not good for anything, but it only ruins the hearers. It's interesting, that word there, ruin. It is what... The word in Greek, you're going to hear what the English word is. The word in Greek is katastrophe. You hear it in there. It's kat- kat- katastrophe. <laughs> katastrophe. Catastrophe, sorry. <laughs> Thinking in Greek. It's katastrophe. I guess it matters where you put that emphasis, doesn't it? Uh, catastrophe. And so what Paul is saying, it becomes catastrophic to the hearers. Now, that needs to sink in. Because when we allow arguing and quarreling to become the thing that we're known for, it can ruin the hearers, Paul says. Now, again, I want to be clear. There are times where we do have to defend and defend assertively the truth. But our first goal should be to communicate truth and love and in a spirit of peace and calmness and humility. Paul continues, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Again, you have an express command, do your best. So what Paul is, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Now, I want to stop right there because this is important. Not that I'm worried that you think that Paul is now trying to sneak works righteousness back in the door. That's not what he's doing. He's talking to save people, so this is not the issue here. What he's doing is, is he's saying to, you are saved by faith, you're still called to live well, despite the fact that you are saved not, a power of your, not by a power of your own, 
that same power that saves you is meant to drive you to present yourself as one approved, one who shows themselves not only in word, but indeed also not only can I speak the truth, but I am shaped by the truth, and I want to live out the precepts of the truth. That we present ourselves approved, that we live by the precepts of the Holy Spirit. And what he says is do your best, present yourself as one approved. Now again, do your best recognizing that there are going to be times where we don't do it perfectly. That is what repentance is for. But that we might be a worker who needs to not be ashamed, a worker unashamed. Because when we're living out the precepts of truth, no matter what culture says, we are approved by God. And what Jesus says is that he, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, unashamed. He was unashamed by the truth of God. How does the one who presents himself approve that they are unashamed? How does that show, how's that borne out? By rightly handling the word of truth. Now, this is one of the more sobering commands to preachers and teachers in the Bible. How does a teacher and preacher of the Word of God show his medal, show their medal? They do so by rightly handling the Word of truth, not twisting, not corrupting, not making concessions for the culture. Some of what God says is hard stuff. I mean, we live in the culture that we live in, and Romans 1 is still true. Romans 1 is still true. The stories about Sodom and Gomorrah are still true. No matter how unpalatable they might be, no matter how hard it is to have those conversations, we live in a culture where God defines ethics in very black and white terms. There is no gray area in God's ethical stand about sexuality or gender or, or human relationships and roles in those relationships. Those things are very solidly black and white. The only reason those waters get muddied is when we're trying to make concessions for a culture to salvage conversation rather than let God's truth stand. And so how do we evaluate teachers and preachers? How do we evaluate ourselves in the, in the midst of proclaiming to friends and neighbors are we rightly handling the word of truth? Now, let's leave room for us to give an interpretation and for someone to come alongside us and say, hey, I think you said this, but you might be mistaken in that. Let's look at this together. Yes, that needs to happen. But at the very, the very basic level, how does someone show themselves approved and not ashamed? Well, how do they handle the word of God? Do they make concessions or do they stand firm? Are they willing to be bold and humble, and loving, and kind? Or do they capitulate at the first sign of attack? Because when we think about what it means to be honorable in God's kingdom, it means to stand for truth. When we think about what it would mean to be ashamed in God's kingdom, it means to compromise truth for gain. Gain, maybe social gain, maybe monetary gain, whatever the gain might be. But most often when truth is compromised, it's because the person who compromises it stands to gain something. What I'm saying here, please, please don't hear me saying, well, it's just easy. Just go out and do it. It's not easy. 
It wasn't easy for Paul. Paul died because of it. The apostles died because of it. People throughout the centuries have died because of it. So it's not as if Paul is saying, well, Timothy, just read this book and go do it. Yeah, read the book and go do it, but not because it's easy, but because it's right. Not because it will get us smiles and bubblegum and cotton candy, but it will show us approved before God. It will be honorable to the Lord, and it will be what the hearts and minds of the lost and broken in our midst need the most. He gives another express command, avoid irreverent babble. Again, kind of piggybacking on what he's already said in verse 14, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Now, I want you to think about this. It ruins the hearers. It will lead people into more and more ungodliness. In verse 18, he'll talk about those swerving from the truth, upsetting the faith of some. So he's getting at the heart of why is truth so important because of what it does to the mind and heart of human beings. This avoid here, another express command, avoid foolish talk, it literally says, or something that's irreligious. In this context, it's hard to know exactly what Paul meant. Most likely, just some sort of flesh-promoting teaching. You know, some sort of thing that actually promoted the flesh of a person or the status of someone else. Because as he mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus here in just a minute, we get the sense that it was something that had to do to promote the teacher and not the teaching so much. But what he says, look at how he compares it. Avoid irreverent babble, express command, and that way that avoid is written is to avoid and keep avoiding. You're constantly, Paul, Timothy, Ephesus, Chapel, Gainesville, church, wherever, you're constantly going to have to avoid this. It's always going to be there. You're going to have to avoid it, always. And he's right. It still is. Right? We still have to avoid it. So avoid this irreverent babble. Why? Because this is a causal statement. That four there tells us there's a cause behind it. It will, not it might, it can, it has, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Now, that, that's, a cert, that's a certainty. It will do this. This is exactly what it will do. Why do you need to constantly avoid it? Because this is the only pathway it can take you down is more and more ungodliness. And so when we think about this false message that he's talking about, it leads into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Gangrene, that infection that gets into the tissue, that eats, slowly eats it up and will kill you if left untreated. In worst-case scenarios, it leads to death, and somewhat less worst-case scenarios, it leads to the loss of appendages, and in somewhat less... Uh, case scenarios, it leads to major, major medical intervention that, if not caught, will eventually kill you. And so he, he rightly says it spreads like this false message, it spreads like infection. It will kill you. But then he makes it personal, and here is where it gets personal. Beloved of God, when Paul takes time to mention people by name, that should catch our attention because this is not just some dude. These are not just two dudes that Paul had heard of. These are two people he knew. And having the pain of seeing brothers he knew turn into this, well, that's an act of betrayal, and it's deep and it's painful and it hurts. But it's also that sobering reality. What happens when... People we know slowly begin to drink from the fountain of what is false 
hearing that irreverent babble, hearing that foolish talk and listening to it and listening to it, what begins to happen is what probably all of us in this room have seen play out, where someone who we once walked along the pathway of righteousness with begins to get sidetracked in the wilderness, and maybe they don't outright leave the faith, but they abandon most of the things that would have defined them as scriptural, and they go in a direction that the Holy Spirit is not leading them. We've seen it play out in what we would call the celebrities, the evangelical celebrities, and perhaps some of you have seen it played out with friends, people that you've once known and loved and who even as I'm telling you this, their faces are flashing in your mind and it's painful. It's painful to remember the joy that you once shared between you, but now like Hymenaeus and Philetus, they have gone the way of the world. Paul giving us this just reminds us of just how personal it gets. Because have you ever had that someone in your life, not so-and-so, and then so-and-so ends up? I have. And if you haven't, God bless you. I hope you never do. But if you have, you know that's that sobering reminder of just how grounded we have to remain in Scripture, not in the ministry of so-and-so, not in the teaching of so-and-so, but in the Bible itself, the Scripture, the Word of God. Because that's the anchor that keeps us firmly rooted where we need to be. Paul builds on this idea. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. What is, how does he describe them? Who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. They've strayed. They've swerved from the truth. When we start thinking about deviations from the truth, any deviation is bad. If you're ever trying to navigate something and you make just a very minor, small deviation, it doesn't matter if you took a wrong left turn or if you just altered your course by a degree or two. You're going to be off in both ways. One is severe and one is just gradually until you're so far off, you might as well have just taken a hard left. Because both lead to a bad end. Both lead to heresy. Both lead to denial of what is true. When we get here saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, this is important. It's, it's a little mysterious in terms of exactly what Paul is talking about. But I think we can kind of piece it together. So Gnosticism hadn't quite come along. You know, the Gnostics were those who believed they had the, the secret message of truth. Uh, they were very Greek in their philosophy. The evil uh, matter, body, what is created is evil. The soul, the spirit is good. And so the whole goal was to separate from evil matter, from everything physical, and lean into the spiritual. So what's happened here is Hymenaeus and Philetus, among others, have swerved from the truth by saying that the resurrection is not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing, that Christ is the spiritual example of how we need to live and not something that we'll actually walk through. This is what would be called a pre-Gnostic idea before Gnosticism really got rooted. Why do you think historic Christianity makes a, a point 
to say that we believe in the bodily resurrection of believers to meet Christ because we are putting to rest any idea that, we're, that this is just some spiritual thing that is meant to be a good example for us and that we all are to live as resurrected in Christ. Well, we should, but we need to remember that we are waiting for a bodily resurrection with Christ. Paul was saying they're denying this. He, he, he will deal with this somewhat in 1 Corinthians 15. But their goal is to spiritualize, and Paul says, here's the problem. They're upsetting the faith of some. In other words, they're leading them astray. They're taking them away from truth. Beloved, that's always the goal of false teaching. Always. Always. The goal of false teaching is to introduce an alternate theory to make a compromise easier so that you accept a false premise and you give yourself to a broken and false reality. No one ever said the Christian life would be easy, but it is the right way, and it is the narrow path that we must walk because wide is the way of destruction. C.S. Lewis captured it in his, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank, the demon book, what is it? Screw tape letters. I promise you I'm okay, and I've actually read that book multiple times. That's the problem when you're trying to think on the spot, and sometimes your, your, your brain just betrays you. I'm not going to tell you the, the title I was about to say, but um, the screw tape letters when, when Wormwood is, is telling um, that humans are food for consumption, that is a very, very good rendition of what the enemy and the false message wants to do is consume, not give. Well, Paul brings this really to, uh, he, he buttons this up, he ties this up with verses in verse 19, by giving us the converse of this. But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. What is, what is this, God's firm foundation? What does Paul mean there? Several different ideas of what Paul could mean there. Does Paul just mean generally the truth? Uh, does Paul mean you know, the power of the Spirit at work in God's people? Is Paul making a reference to the church? Or is the church God's firm foundation? I mean, good Jesus, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death shall not prevail against it. Well, how do we answer that? We would just say, yes. It is all those things. It is God's truth. It is God's people. Uh, it's all these things coming together, God's Spirit at work to seal. I love this word because Paul's using two metaphors here. He's mixing metaphors. He's using a building, the firm foundation, something that's built on, and then he's using seal, this covenant language. So he's talking about the people of God who are sealed in the firm foundation. And what he gives us two ideas here. Uh, Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. The Lord knows those who are His. The first aspect of this, this twin pillars, is God's preserving grace. The Lord knows who are His, and the implication of that knowledge is He keeps them. The Lord knows and keeps those who are His. But I love what He adds to this. It's so important. 
one of the rallying cries of, of our doctrine of salvation is that the saints of God truly do persevere. What does Paul do? He tells us that. The Lord knows those who are His, i.e., He knows and keeps, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So you get the preserving grace of God and the perseverance of the saints smashed right beside, side by side. Why do the saints persevere? Because the grace of God is big enough to keep us and know us and push us. And because the grace of God is that big and that strong and that important, the saints of God want to persevere. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, right side by side. Don't solve the tension. Just let them sit there. It's beautiful. And it's important. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. What is it to be used by God? It's honor. I won't take time to turn there. Uh, you can go back and read Romans 9. God talks about, Paul rather there, talks about uh, God's people. He uses two different pictures. He uses the picture of vessels for honor and dishonor, but he also uses the picture of objects of mercy and wrath. And when we think about vessels of honor and dishonor, objects of mercy and wrath, I want you to understand, we need to understand that that whole picture, the whole thing, the whole thing brings the truth of the gospel home that God judges sin, and that God gives grace to those he loves, that, that brings the truth of the gospel home. But what Paul says here is as we, as every great house has vessels that are used for honorable things and some that are used for dishonorable things, objects of mercy, objects of wrath, that is the language of Romans 9, he talks about cleansing if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable. Again, what is Paul driving at? Is he trying to say that, well, if you can just get yourself up out of the hole, then God will bless you? Well, no. He's talking about departing from error. We need to understand that here. How, do, how does one cleanse himself for dishonorable use? Well, given the context, we need to see this in its context. Depart from error. Don't be drawn away from what is false and defiled and unclean. Stay in the pathway of truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Embrace truth despite what the world says, and we will live with honor. And then Paul says, if we are embracing truth, if we are living by that truth, that we will be useful to the master of the house. Well, first off, set apart as holy, and then useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. So you know what Paul is not going to do? He's not going to let us sit back on the laurels of Christ and say we do nothing, but he's also not going to let us fast forward through the laurels of Christ and say we do everything. The merit of Christ stands and the power of the Holy Spirit compels, and yes, we have a life to live. And why do we do that? Because in Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, we're new creations in Christ. Because who you are is gone. You are who God has made you to be. Or some might like the We've transitioned from strictly sinner to saint who sins. That's an identity change. New creation, old creation's gone. Sinner to a saint who missteps in sin. Because God has remade us to live for Him.
I want to say something to you that I feel deeply in my own soul, and it's not easy to say, but it's right, it's true. The call to honor God really is worth sacrificing everything. It's not easy to say, it's not easy to do. We just don't live in a time anymore. We no longer live in a time where we make great sacrifices for honor. I was, I was in the theater when I was a younger man, uh, and one of the very small productions that we did was Arthur Miller's The Crucible. And of course, there's a, a, a wonderful movie with Daniel Day-Lewis out of that movie. Do you remember, if you've seen it or read it, do you remember at the very end of that movie when they're just trying to convince John Proctor, just say you were complicit in this, sign your confession, and you'll get to live. And he's contemplating it, and then he just has this emotional response, but, but that's my name. That's my name. If I put my name to this, I'm complicit in a lie, and I'm letting my name be dragged through something. He's like, I have nothing, but I have my name. I got chill bumps right now. You can't see. It's a powerful scene where he chooses death. Why? For honor. <laughs> He won't smear his name to save his own life. And I'm telling you, it rings hollow to modern ears because I will lie and do whatever I have to just to save my skin. Well, that's mostly because we don't prize honor as we once did. But see, in God's economy, the name of Christ is everything. It is the thing that we should seek to preserve, that we should lay down our lives, that we should give our all for the name of Christ to shine. To honor God really is to give all of who we are to and for Him. It's to lay all of what we have and are on the altar of sacrifice that we might be conduits of His truth. Beloved, we are called to a life of honor, and it is an honor where God Himself gets all the glory, and we rejoice that He is glorified. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Help us to be a people of honor, to be people who are committed to your honor and to your glory. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for pulling us out of this world. And Father, even thank you for the crucible that we often find ourselves in. Your mercy is so rich and true and good. Father, we thank you, we love you, and we ask that you continue to help us be people of honor. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.